Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and this is an episode in the Princeton University Press Ideas podcast brought to you by our friends at Princeton University Press in conjunction with the New Books Network. And I'm very happy to say that today we have Richard Scholar on the program, and we'll be talking about his terrific book, Emigres, French Words That Turned English. It came out from Princeton University Press in 2020. Welcome to the show, Richard. Thank you very much indeed for having me. My pleasure. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yes. Well, I'm a writer, a translator, and I uh, am a professor of French at Durham University in the UK. I, I moved to Durham in 2019, having spent the previous 13 years uh, at Oxford. Um, I have long been fascinated by the connections between French and its neighbouring cultures, including English. My undergraduate training was in uh, English and French. So I suppose that's a a sort of potted biography, which also explains something of why I was interested in writing this book. I kind of want to talk to you about the expression potted, potted history, because that's not an American expression, but I hear it a lot in England, but we won't go there. Potted. I just find that fascinating. Where does that come from? Potted. Um, in any event, why, why did you write Emigre's French words that turned English and what were you hoping to accomplish with the book? Well, I should start by adding a note to my, a footnote to my bio, uh, biography, which is that I co-direct a, uh, an international research project called Early Modern Keywords. And uh, that takes us into the, uh, into, into the book, Early Modern Keywords being a study of words that people share as they discuss the central processes of their common life. And Early Modern Keywords is a project which takes in um, many different languages. My particular interest is in French, but French as it connects to its neighboring cultures and languages. So I wanted to write um, uh, the book because I suppose I, in a broad sense, I wanted to contribute to the whole uh, project of thinking about keywords, um, words, these words that we use as we discuss the central processes of our common life that words that we share, but that also sometimes uh, put us at odds with one another since we have different ways of understanding the same words. And these words also change a lot over time. I wanted to, um, I suppose, cause um, speakers of English to reflect that many of the keywords that they use uh, come to English from outside. They come to English from their neighboring foreign languages. and none, none more so than uh, from French, which is the language which has lent more words to English than any other modern foreign language. So I wanted to invite um, English speakers to, th- uh, well, to all speakers to think about this phenomenon and, and to reflect on what it has to say about neighbouring languages and cultures, in particular Anglophone cultures all over the world, as they've connected, related to, borrowed from, uh, adapted words from there from from france and from from the french um i I would say that about 40 percent of the words you just used probably came from french (laughs) yes absolutely and i i play that game a little bit in the book actually the first sentence of the book has some some words all of the nouns uh in the first sentence of the book um, are uh, borrowed from French at some point in, in, in the history of English. Some of them remain, if you like, 
floridly or obviously French. Um, uh, so, so we might use them as as we use them in English. We might try to affect a French accent even, or or, or <laughs> pronounce them. You know, show that they show that they remain French. Whereas other words in uh, that we've borrowed in English from French have just been seamlessly absorbed into the English language by now. We'd have absolutely no sense that they were French. I mean, you and I are in the middle of having a conversation. And in the 17th century, the word conversation would have struck English speakers as floridly uh, French. So that's just one example of many words that, you know, for, for English speakers today are have nothing, nothing, as it were, French about them. Whereas, you know, uh, when we say, when we meet uh, at the beginning of a conversation, having never met before and say to one another, enchanté, or something like that, uh, we're, 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 we're visibly and audibly borrowing a French word into English. I have a friend who recently said to me, Marshall, you're really big on the grand geste. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there you go. <laughs> he had you. <laughs> yeah, he really did. And I was like, because he was showing off <laughs> that he knew that there was this. Anyway, because it does mark a, a, a register. I mean, that told me something about him. I already knew a lot about him. And uh, so anyway, it well, made sense. I think that's actually an absolutely crucial element of of what I wanted to to point out in the book, which is that using a, a foreign word in English always positions the speaker uh, uh, in respect of um, access to education, access yeah. to the foreign, and also, by the way, uh, positions the listener to or the, or the interlocutor because uh, when the speaker chooses to use a word or borrow a foreign word in that way, they're also communicating something to the listener. And if the listener understands, then the listener is also at some level confirmed in their access to the foreign language or and to the education that goes with that. So there's always in English, I think, and as it relates to uh, to French, notably, um, a kind of que- uh, a, a question about socio-cultural um, privilege, access to education, and all of those things. Class, um, you know, often uh, fr- French is, uh, at least in its relation to, to Norman, um, going centuries back, it, it marks um, your position in the ruling class in England. So. So, and there's something residually uh, that remains the case about that even to this day, and that perhaps was at play in your conversation with your. Yeah, partner. I think this. I think this fellow was just joking with me a little bit. He was sort of making fun of my own pretensions. Um, but I am reminded of something that I learned in graduate school. I come from the kind of American equivalent of what I think you would call the Midlands. It was a rural area in mm-hmm. the United States, Kansas, and. I don't think I ever, I met anyone who spoke a foreign language before I got to college. Mm. And I remember when I was first reading early modern history, that there would be these journal articles about, let's say, French history, and they would be in English, but then there would be a long passage in French, Mm -hmm. as if I knew French, (laughs) and I did not know French, Mm. Um, because people that read those kinds of articles know French. Mm I didn't. Yes. <laughs> so, so there's a whole question there, isn't there, about um, the to to what degree one really needs the foreign language, the foreign term, the foreign phrase, um, uh, and if it's needed, to what degree is that uh, is one calling on this uh, element, this this foreign element of language, in a way that's going to be accessible 
to the interlocutor or to the reader. And, you know, one of the things that really interests me about is, is the question that that poses to not just to speakers of English, but actually to, but to, to, to writers of English, to artists, um, you know, to what degree are they really, do, to, what degree, to what degree do they really need this foreign term? What is it doing or what is it adding that's different to the language? And to what degree are they making something of that so that it so that it remains well so that it remains a truly communicative act to the to the interlocutor to the reader to the audience? Um, yes, yes. I, I had a professor, a, a beloved professor, a really a genius of a guy who used to say, a Russianist, who used to say, uh, if someone leaves a word untranslated in a scholarly article, it means that they don't know what it means. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I'm not sure that's true, but <laughs> well, I think there's a sort of. I mean, I, I'm not sure it's. Uh, I'm not sure it's in true either. But I think it's a good test of the untranslated word. You know, um, the, the in a sense that what one might suggest that the 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 the, the true. I mean, the true. The term that's often used these days for these words that remain residually <clears throat> untranslated is, is to call them un, untranslatables. You know, there's been a whole um, uh, body of work done in re- in recent years which say that some keywords of language are untranslatables. I, I don't think untranslatables need, mean that they are necessarily impossible to translate, but it's that there's something about their meaning that is difficult to translate from one language to another. And that sort of, that, that justifies, if you like, the recourse to the, the untranslated word. It's, it's some degree of untranslatability, which means that it, it's used in, or taken out of one language and used in another. Um, and um, I mean, one of the things that I constantly observed as I was working on this book was the way in which the untranslated term Often travels in the company of a, 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 as it were, a native synonym. So, you know, for example, um, if you're going to, so the word, one of the words I write about in the book is the word ennui, which it often travels in in the company of a word like boredom or apathy or indolence or lethargy. Mm-hmm. There's a series of synonyms or near synonyms in 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 English that that travel alongside in the sentence along next to the word ennui and that color the word ennui but that but that also are changed by the companionship of ennui in the sentence so it's quite different to say uh you know in english oh you know what, what's wrong with you well i'm feeling a bit bored but uh on the one hand and on the other hand to say you know um yes this is a boredom that smacks to me of ennui or you know all that yeah uh, so so to to pair those words um, adds a kind of coloration to the meaning of the English word as well as to the French word and suggests something that is more than either of those words taken on their own can capture. And it's that way in which language is, is so flexible at being combined, put together, um, uh, and so on, so as to capture nuance of meaning. That, that's an interesting feature of this of 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 the of this entire um uh this entire project yeah i i noticed what you mean there are uh, again i'm a russianist and there are words one i can think of in particular it's the word is blot and and what it means is influence is improper influence and 
essentially it, it grew up in a context in which bribery of certain sorts was rife. Now, it's not rife in the United States, so it is kind of untranslatable, this word bluff, because we, we just don't do that in the United States. But mm. in the Russian context, it's very, it, it's very evocative, and it has a very specific meaning. It means improper influence. But you would, improper influence doesn't exactly roll off the tongue in English. <laughs> anyway, I want to get to definitions before we go on. Um, the linguists might be interested in this. In your usage, what is an emigre word? So an emigre word is uh, something I touched on earlier when I said that uh, there are some words that uh, travel, uh, if you like, that if we're using the metaphor of, of, of seeing words as people that migrate, as it were, from one language to another. Um, and I said to you before that, you know, French has lent many such words to English. Um, emigre words are those words within that cate- that broad category of, of words that have migrated, they're words that have remained residually French and English, words like caprice or ennui, as I just mentioned, or naivety or phrases like à la mode. Okay, so these are words that, as we use them in English, ret- we retain or, or recall something of the French provenance of that term. And obviously, I, I, dev- I, I invented or, or borrowed the word émigré, um, to, to, to capture, to describe these particular words, because, of course, the word emigrate is itself an example of yeah. what, I, what I'm describing. Um, so uh, uh, an emigrate word is a French foreign borrowing that has moved from English into, sorry, from French into English and retained something of its, of its provenance. Right. But the important distinction, if I understand correctly, is it continues to be marked versus unmarked as French. So to give an American example, I'd be willing to bet that a lot of people don't know that the word burrito is a Spanish word (laughs) because it refers to a burrito. And that's like a really American thing, a burrito. (laughs) It's not marked anymore. Yes. Okay. That, 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 yeah. Um, So I think that's exactly right. It's, it's the marking. Yeah. uh, that that const- that 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 determines or or or, um, uh, or defines this as an emigre word. Now, of course, there's something approximative about this uh, about this about this whole designation because um, almost as I think as your example of the burrito uh, might suggest, in different situations, different language users are more or less aware of the residually yeah. or an element of the phrase and. Um, uh, so we're, we're, we're dealing here with a kind of spectrum of usage in which, uh, at the one end you have entirely words that have been entirely naturalized in a language on the other hand, end you have words that remain resolutely, um, kind of foreign elements. And then there's lots of stuff in between, which is somewhere between, yeah, somewhere between those two, those two, uh, ends of the spectrum. And I suppose the words that I've particularly been interested in tend to be words that are towards the towards the residually foreign element of of the spectrum. Although in some cases uh, they shift around. Um, so if I may, if I if I could add to your burrito example um, one of my own, it would be so maybe um, after you. I don't know if it would be in the same diner in the U.S. that after you've had a burrito, you might like to have apple pie. Uh, uh, to finish for dessert. Well, 
I was going to mention this example. You know, if you have apple <laughs> in, in in the states, if you want to go into any old any diner and have apple pie with ice cream, it's it's apple pie. Obviously, a mode. A la mode. <laughs> okay, well, a la mode is one of the is. Uh, of a French borrowing, um, which has come into English, which came into the English language in the course of the 17th century, which has had all sorts of different meanings, but essentially has to do with, uh, with yeah, to with, with marking something as being in some sense fashionable or after the fashion. Um, but you know, I think that in most U.S. American diners, most of the time when you ask for apple pie a la mode, you're not in any way signalling. Uh, you know, uh, marking out no. uh, your your apple pie as as being really French, uh, just as you probably don't when you have French fries. Um, no. But you you uh, want ice cream? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But but um, you know, but what, when when I excavated the history of the phrase "à la mode," I found it being used in all sorts of ways in English, which do continue to mark the the residual or the the the, the initial Frenchness of that. Phrase. And and not just in English either, by the way. You know, Alain Mod travels all over the world and um, uh, gets into German uh, even before it does into English and other uh, other other Germanic languages. So um, this connects to a much broader story, historical story, uh, historical phenomenon, which has to do with the exportation in the 17th and 18th centuries of French culture across the world as being at some level. Uh, fa- you know, setting the fashion for for polite and civilized society the world over, and so if if languages all over the world receive French à la mode, it's because they're all looking to France as a as a model of cultural um, elegance or uh, sophistication and and so on. Um, and for, and it, the English story is just uh, and the Anglophone world story is 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 just a part of that. So yeah, I mean, at the time in the 17th century, particularly, a pr- French was a prestige language, uh, and in the 18th century as well. You know, at the Russian court, they spoke French, so <laughs> it was a very prestige language. Absolutely, French is the language of international diplomacy throughout that period. Um, uh, it's yes, it's it's a, it's a it's. I mean, this is a uh, has to do with the um, you know the, the 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 if you like the hard e- economic. Power and, and and political might of 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 France in the um, in the area of first of all its domination in uh, or its yes yeah, domination of, in in Europe and then its um, uh, colonial um, uh, expansion uh, across all sorts of parts of the world. Um, this all of this predates, if you like, the, the then the, the the rise of Britain as an imperial power and. Yeah. Um, and so, so in some respects, this story I'm telling is is buried actually under uh, for many for, for in the contemporary moment by the subsequent rise of Great Britain as first as an imperial power, and then the United States, obviously in the 20th century, which in which English um, is the first language. Um, um, so, uh, I wanted to, if you like, rewind the clock to that point at which it's France that has the uh, that, 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 that occupies that position of, of, of not just political power, but also soft cultural power uh, and is a kind of model to which other countries look. And I wanted to think about the ambivalence that that, that cultural dominance uh, awakens in 
the the little island next door to France. Um, <laughs> speaking to you from. <laughs> uh, we should also um, spare a thought for modern editors because I used to edit an academic journal. And so when I would come upon a word like ennui, the question is, is that italicized or not? <laughs> because... <laughs> well, I think that's, um, I mean, in a way, if I might, that I would add that to what we were saying earlier about markers. So we yeah. talked earlier about how you mark in, in speech. Um, a word as having a foreign um, provenance or resonance. Um, but the same question applies typographically when you're then yeah. uh, deciding how to set that word in print. And um, I had all sorts of fun, actually, uh, with my t- copy editors and typesetters in Princeton uh, University Press, going um, exploring exactly the question that you just posed, Marshall. You know, when are, when are we going to think about you know to what degree are we thinking about about this word as as foreign and 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 therefore you know if we're going to apply to it the the, the sort of the the convention that um, foreign terms in English are italicized. Um, yeah, I got and, no good solution for this. So, copy editors everywhere, good luck. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I was saying earlier that that, that words occupy a spectrum, and obviously. Uh, in this respect, and the, the binary of italicized or, or not italicized Roman is not not very capable of capturing a binary. Yeah. Maybe we can introduce a sort of semi-italicized. <laughs> or, <laughs> yeah, make the, make the editors even more miserable. Um, <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about the 17th century, because that's crucial for your book and the court of Charles II. This was a moment at which the introduction of these French terms uh, had a kind of heyday. And you talk about a couple of people, uh, John Evelyn and John Dryden. Um, can you explain why it was the case that the Court of Charles II was sort of a hotbed of this sort of thing? Yes. I mean, there's a there's obviously a long uh, prehistory to that moment uh, uh, of the Court of Charles II. So Charles II is obviously the, che- the second of the Stuarts, uh, the second of the Charles Stuarts to reign uh, to, to, to reign in England and the English Kingdom. Um, his father Charles I was uh, married to um, a French Catholic princess, um, and so there's an early an earlier phase of, if you like, French, the Frenchification of the English court in the 17th century. Um, through through the wife of Charles I. Then Charles I is, uh, loses out in the English Civil War. He's deposed and beheaded. Um, uh, his son, uh, Charles, fl- flees to France and spends the, the extraordinary and turbulent middle part of the 17th century um, in, in France. So it looks across to England and sees uh, Cromwell and his parliamentarians uh, in charge of the English Republic. Um, and it's only in 1660 uh, uh, when Charles returns to England and restores uh, the the monarchy, the Stuart monarchy, uh, giving this period its its name, uh, its conventional historical name of the English Restoration. It's only at that moment that Charles comes back to England, and what he brings back to him, sorry, what he brings back with him uh, from to to England is. Um, well, all of the experience, the, the the access to France and to French culture that he's enjoyed personally during his years at the court of his 
cousin Louis the Fourteenth of France, but also uh, a whole uh, retinue and array, a suite, as the French would say, of courtiers who've had spent the the um, spent the the the, the interregnum, the Republic, the years. Uh, in exile in France at the French court. And so what you have is this, this extraordinary moment when mo- the restoration of the monarchy in England brings with it a, f- a new wave, a new high watermark of Frenchification of English courtly culture and manners. And that, you know, inspires a great deal of worry and a great deal of... of um, uh, resistance among many people in England, even as it, um, you know, expresses the admiration of the English ruling class for English culture. So uh, it's it's viewed by many as at some level, a kind of, um, well, an influx of foreign influence, an influx of foreign influence, which is all too uh, redolent of, you know, the uh, that founding moment in um, British history centuries back, the Norman conquest of England. So lots of people see this uh, moment of restoration as in fact nothing other than a second Norman conquest and want to resist it on those terms. And let, let us not forget that what is coming back into or coming back to the fore in English culture and society along with French influence is Catholic influence. Uh, there, there's a very strong suspicion among many opponents of Charles II, that he's not only Frenchifying in his manners, but also covertly Catholic. And this is a period in England where obviously there's a um, a very long running but very explosive tension between um, uh, Protestantism and Catholicism. And the uh, previous, you know, the parliamentarians on the on on the Protestant period, uh, end of this spectrum. So there's so so as so often with um, with language, you, uh, with, uh, language, language contact, you also have contact uh, between cultures, religious cultures as well. And um, all of that leads to a moment of, well, I think both of, of great uh, receptivity towards French language and culture in, in England, but also of great resistance to it. And it's that mixture, that unresolved uh, tension and conflict between the between receptivity and resistance that so interests me in the way in which anglophone speakers constantly uh, seem to relate to, to to French culture. So, I mean, I'm describing here a very specific 17th century, late 17th century yeah. moment, but I think it touches on uh, a much more long-running um, and abiding. Uh, ambivalence in anglophone culture towards towards the french and, and and the language that they speak so when they started to introduce these words that a number of words <clears throat> become i want to say au courant yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, me. Um, mm-hmm. uh, they, they start to use these words and there are different reactions i mean uh, evelyn if i understand correctly wanted to create an english version of the french academy which is sort of I don't know. My American perspective is the language police. <laughs> um, yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So, so um, Evelyn's a really good. John Evelyn's a really good example of what we're talking about here. John Evelyn is um, a extraordinary man. He's a polymath, interested in all sorts of different areas of learning. Um, 
Uh, he's very important in the history of gardening. Uh, he he's a translator from um, uh, English into of, of many texts from French into English. Um, he's a fellow of the early Royal Society, the Royal Society connected created by Charles II, in order to bring essentially um, uh, Britain into into sort of into competition with into emulation with France. I mean, France is, uh, is, is has gone through a much greater period of political stability. It's established academies. Of all, uh, in all kinds of areas of learning and enterprise and science and so on, um, and those are um, um, you know helping the the country to to, to modernise, to find new, to bring new ideas to the fore and so on. Uh, Charles does the same in England. He um, uh, he and his people create the, the Royal Society. Um, Evelyn's a member of the Royal Society. One of the things that the Royal Society is asked to think about is whether English is a language that's capable of <laughs> delivering technological, uh, yeah, scientific, philosophical, literary, cultural, and other progress to the country. And there's a very widespread feeling um, in England that, um, that English isn't yet up to it, that uh, up to the job, that English lacks um, a technical, uh, philosophical, um, and, and, and uh, literary vocabulary uh, which would be, which would enable it to make that kind of progress. So um, there's this very interesting uh, chapter in the history of the early Royal Society where a, a small committee is formed. Uh, 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 you know, 17th century academics, it seems, behaved in the same way as 21st century. Not <laughs> to set up a committee. Um, a committee is formed to to consider what needs to be done for the purposes of improving the English language. And John Evelyn, this polymathic figure and a fellow of the Royal Society, is asked to join the committee. Now, it turns out that the committee is going to meet on Tuesday afternoons. <laughs> and uh, John Evelyn can't make Tuesday afternoons. He's got something else to do. Um, and so as a result, he writes a letter to the chairman of the committee setting out what he thinks his answer to the question is of, you know, what needs to be done in order to improve the English language. And it's thanks to that letter that we have a very clear idea of what Evelyn's views were. I don't think we'd have that idea if he just sat in on the committee yeah. uh, and, and, and spoken to it. And his view is that, um, yeah, that, that English does indeed lack, well, it lacks words. It lacks words that will enable it uh, to, 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 to make progress in terms of its, um, uh, yeah, it's, 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 Philosophical, technical, and um, it, and and its culture, cultural um, activity, but more broadly, um, I think he also thinks that um, English lacks the institution which would enable that vocabulary to be brought into English to to be introduced in a way that was durable and useful, and um, that's where he looks across to this one of these academies, uh, one of these academies. Created in France, the the, so the 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 famous Académie Française, the French Academy, which is concerned with the language itself um, and the improvement of the French language. And Evelyn thinks we don't just want the, essentially we don't just want the French words or some French words to come over over here. We also want the institution. We want to uh, we want to translate into English into Eng the English setting the institution 
that enables the language to be improved in and cultivated in in ways that will be durable. And so that's the burden of his letter to this chair, the chair of this committee. Um, now that the the idea came to nothing, um, I think more or less so did the committee. So um, you know, we, we, uh, the, <laughs> most committees come to nothing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> What we're le- so we have a very different history of the language in, in, in England where um, we don't have the same uh, institutional overview. We have a much more fluid and much more diverse sort of um, uh, set of initiatives uh, over the intervening centuries. But I mean, I think that Evelyn's um, letter captures something of what I was just talking about earlier, which is that sense that, um, that, that that Britain in the late 17th century needs to look across the channel to France, also, by the way, um, to, to, to Spain and to Italy, for, for, uh, to, 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 to learn from these, uh, these neighbouring cultures better ways of doing and saying uh, than currently exist in back home. Yeah. Um, uh, then kind of on the other side of the aisle, uh, you have someone like Dryden, and he satirizes the use of French, if I understand correctly. I've not, I've not read these plays or stories, but um, yeah, from that, that he uh, makes fun of this kind of French pretension. Can you talk a little bit about that? I don't know if pretension is the right word, but yes, I mean Dryden's playing a very clever game. Um, uh, he's criticizing French culture with a with a forked tongue. Um, because even as he criticizes it, he's also doing it himself. Yeah. You know, so um, I think what, what, so Dryden writes plays like, I mean, the, the, a play I write about in the book and that is really central to this whole issue is Dryden's play Marriage a la Mode. They a la mode, yeah. We're back to a la Mode. Marriage with ice cream. <laughs> as I would understand it. <laughs> well, I'm sure the ice cream is served somewhere towards the end because it is a very happy ending that the play has. But uh, in the mean, in the meantime, you have um, you have a story. Uh, uh, one of the s- main plot strands in that play has uh, features a um, a, y- a young um, woman who from, from so, a sort of well-to-do urban woman but not who has not made, um doesn't have access to the court so she's she's an she's a arriviste she's an arriviste <laughs> or, or a parvenu parvenu uh, yeah there you go there's plenty of words for these people um because <laughs> yeah. it of course is also a, a highly rigidly hierarchical court culture People yeah. want to come up into that culture. How do they come up into that culture? Well, by having money, but also by um, imitating the manners of the courtly culture to which they want to belong. It's like you know how you get into the in club is by uh, is by learning to imitate the the manners and the codes of the in club. Well, this is an in club that speaks in that French, in which French is fashionable. French is itself à la mode. So this young woman, Melantha. Is her name? She um, she's a figure in the in the play who is the sort of target, if you like, of Dryden's satire of social climbers in England who who season their conversation with far too much French because they're desperate to want to uh, you know make it make it upwards, um, be upwardly mobile in English society. So she gets she has a friend she has a maid, 
And this made uh, uh, it one of the jobs that this maid has, as well as providing, you know, making sure that her dress and her uh, her toiletry is is up to scratch. Is uh, her, her other job is to bring to her mistress every day new French words with which <laughs> will season her her English conversation. And of course, the maid is in many ways much cleverer than her mis- mistress, so understands lots of these words and is able to do clever things with them. But um, the, what what all of this enables Dryden to do is um, at what is at once to show that he is. Um, you know, he's at the kind of uh, forefront of of fashionable English civility. He has all of the um, access to French learning that is prized at court. He's finally attuned to courtly sensibility enough that he can criticise the abuses of Frenchification in England, and that sh- and 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 through all of that process, I think he's partly also communicating a very particular English way of interacting with French culture, which is to both to borrow from it while also resisting its dominance, you know, by showing at some level that we can take it, but we can also leave it or we can borrow it in our own way. Um, what Dryden, so, so that that's, so if you like, the kind of overt plot of this or part of this, the plot of this play, there's a covert plot though which i talk about in the book which is that one of the things that dryden doesn't share with his reader his readers is that um or the spectators of the play is that is that dryden him sorry yeah dryden himself in designing the plot of this play was borrowing silently from the french comedies of the day comedies like uh the the very famous comedies of moliere um, yeah, Tartuffe. Yeah, uh, Tartuffe is one good example. The the really relevant one, or one of the really relevant one here, ones here, is Molière's play Le Bourgeois Gentilhomme. Le Bourgeois Gentilhomme is exactly the f- figure of the social climber in French society. He's a bourgeois. He's a, an urban, you know, he's a well-to-do urban uh, person, but he is desperate to make it up into the aristocracy that's why he's a, a, he's a bourgeois gentilhomme i mean this is these are a contradiction in terms yeah if, if you see what i mean so moliere satirizing the bourgeois gentilhomme in france um dryden borrows elements from that play but also from other uh plays by moliere and and, and other parts of other uh french writers of the time so dryden is himself borrowing and uh importing from from French culture, e- even as he satirizes the abuse of that in 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 the play, that's great. It's, it's fascinating. And then later, it will be rewritten in an entirely different card context as Pygmalion. Yes, <laughs> entirely. Yeah. No no French there, but the same sort of deal. Absolutely, yeah. And you know, one of the things that was exciting things about working on this book was the chance. I mean, I didn't take it in the didn't take this study in the direction of Pygmalion. It's a really Really interesting thought, but you know, one of the one of the one of the great um, excitements of this project for me was the chance I had to follow these words uh, across time and across space. So, um, well, uh, let's actually let's actually do that very briefly because we've yeah. already we've talked for a while. Can you give us a potted history? I don't know if it'll be potted or not of the word that I never know how to pronounce. Naive, naive, naive. I don't. <laughs> well. <laughs> 
both in Dutch. I mean, uh, in naïf. Uh, so it's it's got an F if it's um if it's masculine in French, and then and a VE if it's feminine. Um, but obviously, then it gets uh, the the noun naïveté uh, takes this t- uses the V. So yeah, it's one of those words that, by the way, um, behaves in the way I was describing earlier. It it, it moves around a spectrum of adaptation. Um, so, you know, do you spell naivety in English with an E acute on the end, or do you, do you replace that with a Y, which is a sort of naturalizing gesture? Uh, all of these, uh, there are hundreds of different ways of, of spelling naivety, naivety yeah. in English, and that reflects the, 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 the broader story I was just describing. But, um, well, a potted history of naive um, takes us from the moment we were just talking about um, when um, uh, Dryden's play is one of the very first occasions, first recorded instances of the word naive, naive, naivety in English, is one of those words that um, um, that that Melantha's uh, maid uh, gathers for her and rec- uh, you know f- uh, for her to use uh, as as a sort of Floridly French term to show that she's um, uh, she that she's with it in 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 courtly in the courtly circles she wants to join. Um, it has a particular resonance in English, which uh, because of its its French feeling. So it talks of a naivety. Talks of what? Well, it talks of a native simplicity. Um, the simplicity that comes before the fall, if you like. Um, and, of course, uh, so you might think, well, why do we need to use the word naive, naive or naivety when we could just talk about simplicity yeah. or artlessness or something like that? But I think it's the very foreignness of, or the, and the very Frenchness of naivety which helps here because to speak of somebody as naive or exhibiting naivety is to show as a speaker that you are far removed from the innocent simplicity, the artlessness of which the word speaks, so yeah. there's a there's a useful there's a way in which you can put to use your your or place mark the distance that as a that you uh, that you, uh, um, that you that you have from the, the simplicity of which you wish to speak, and um, that that possibility of naivety travels with the word throughout um, its longer history. Um, I I follow it across um, in the book across through uh, right into the twentieth uh, the late twentieth century to um, uh, the, a novel by the sadly recently departed um, English novelist John Le Carre. Sadly, indeed. Uh, yeah, um, John Le Carre, who wrote a, a very interesting um, these days little read I think novel in the nineteen seventies called The Naive and Sentimental Lover. Um, what what Car- Le Carre is doing there is he's showing that naive often travels around as part of a dis- uh, an opposition in this case, an opposition between the naive and the sentimental, between the artless and the artful, between the innocent and the experienced. Um, what uh, Le Carre is a great student and lover of German literature and German thought and culture, and in fact, um, what 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 Le Carre is doing there is putting making novelistic use of um a, 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 a famous essay by Friedrich Schiller 
um, on the naive and sentimental in poetry, um, where 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 uh, where Schiller presents this as a fundamental distinction, the naive and the sentimental, between different rights, ways of writing poetry and different ways of relating to culture. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Schiller was, of course, in turn borrowing the word naive as he sets up this distinction from French culture of the 17th and 18th centuries. So there's a continuum there. Um, and uh, what it enables Schiller to do and then what it enables uh, Le Carre to to do are are, are really the, the sort of subjects of the of the essay that that I write, um, and I think that what I want to say about that is that uh, really t- sort of re- sort of re- recapitulate some of the things we've talked about in this conversation, which is that Le Carre is interested in a an English culture of um, quite class conscious access to sophistication which seems often to to call upon the french word the french word as it turns english also reveals something about class-based antagonisms in english and anglophone society and um so points out some of the ironies at the heart of 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 that i uh, this is for your note cards um i did note after i read the essay there is now a technical use, a kind of sad technical use of naive in English, and it refers to people who are, for example, opiate naive. Mm. That means first-time drug users, and they're at particular risk. So clinicians now talk about people who are opiate naive, and they, uh, they're, they're an at-risk population because they're trying, essentially, fentanyl-laced heroin. Mm. And, but they've chosen this particular word, opiate naive. That's the expression. Um, so let's go on that for the next edition. Yeah, right. I, I was surprised to see that they had used this yeah. term because you would say inexperienced in using opium, but that's not as really or using heroin. Anyway, let's go on to a word which I kind of find self-satirizing. Every time I read it, I kind of chuckle. Ennui. I'm sure I'm pronouncing it badly, but can you talk a little bit about the history of the word ennui? Or is that boring? <laughs> <laughs> No, I think it's not boring. I mean, it's actually, uh, uh, I mean, in a way, of course, um, a word like ennui, which is used to convey some some dread, wed, world weariness of soul, um, does indeed pose the speaker and the writer and the artist a, a, a fundamental challenge. You know, how am I? How am I going to? What am I going to make of this, of this, of this vortex of you know negative energy, which is which threatens to drain my my artistic uh, work of its of its energy of its yeah. of its creative uh, uh, resources? What I, I mean, ennui is an interesting is is another of these words um, that that that's. First spotted, if you like, by in, in this case by John Evelyn in the in the late seventeenth century, is having a kind of meaning that no existing word in English quite captures. It doesn't really get used much in in English until until about a hundred years later. It starts to be uh, used in the in the late eighteenth and nineteenth um, centuries. Um, and what's interesting to me then is that by that stage in English in British 
um, and 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 sort of the history of anglophone of English speaking peoples all over the world is that we've got by that stage the British Empire spreading all across the world um, to different parts of the world and the rise of a middle class because. Naive, uh, sorry, because ennui is in 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 French culture, at least of um, uh, of the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries, often really associated with people of the leisurely classes. You know, yeah. you can't sit around suffering ennui <laughs> if you're digging the field. Yeah. Um, so, but but by the time that the British um, pick up on the and use it a lot in this in the in, in the late eighteenth nineteenth centuries, it's it's kind the ennui is kind of being democratized you know it's something that uh that afflicts people of 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 all classes um and i follow that story um through the work through literature but also through um but also through the extraordinary work of of uh, uh, the visual artists uh working in the british tradition so there's an extraordinary painting of 1914 by the German-born but London-based artist Walter Sickert. Um, yeah. This is a, a, a painting simply entitled Ennui. It's a, a painting that Virginia Woolf writes about in one of her essays and has not a, a, a kind of um, courtly lady or a sort of aristocratic gent um, reclining in a languid pose, but has... A much more ordinary couple in a drab London parlour in a sort of working class or maybe lower middle class um, parlour, just turning away from one another as though they have nothing left to say to one another. Uh, the man sitting at the table gazing vacantly into, into a kind of empty space. Um, the woman is not even looking at the view she's turned away. Um, Ennui seems to have taken hold of them both in their in their home in their domestic setting, even and and it has a peculiar relationship to the painting because you look at these people and you wonder if they would ever use the word ennui, <laughs> and and yet they are clearly in its grip. Um, it's it, it's hollowed them out, um, and that reflects something of of the artist Sickert, who was himself. You know, German-born, as I said, but also highly cosmopolitan. You can see this in his writing on art. He's he's always looking for. He's very interested in French, uh, the fr- French literature, French novels. Uh, someone called him a Balzac translated into paint. So he's mm. interested. He's a kind of realist, if you like, of the uh, of, of the visual nice. arts. Um, but 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 calling on words that none that, that have a kind of precision to them, even even as they are distinct from the, the the setting that he's describing. Yeah, I was I was trying to think what is the antonym of ennui in English, and what came to mind was the English expression, get on with it. <laughs> or, maybe, or maybe if I may, joie de vivre. Joie de vivre, yeah, right. <laughs> so I want to talk about one final word before I let you go. And this is a word that I didn't associate with French at all. I, it's For me, it's unmarked. And that is caprice. Can you talk about caprice? I don't think of this as a French word, really. I just, I would never, as an editor, italicize it. I would never even think to italicize it. Yeah. I think the key thing there is that you don't say caprice. Uh, <laughs> I don't. Yeah, so right. you're doing something <laughs> Frenchifying and calling it caprice. Yeah. Um, 
one of the things that interests me about Caprice is that it's not just uh, French. It's also, um, and this is a, a word that, that has as its may, as one of its main traveling companions, the Italian word capriccio, which is the obvious. Uh, um, in fact, caprice in French is a borrowing initially from Italian capriccio, um, and uh, English culture receives um, Anglophone culture receives capriccio and caprice at the same time. They're used often interchangeably. Mm. And so there's, you know, the, 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 what this enables me to show about uh, or, 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 or um, demonstrate about uh, my French word that turns English is that it's lots of these words are all often triangulating, really. They're, 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 they're French, but they're also not French. They're also Italian or Spanish or, or, or made sense of by a German writer like Schiller in the case of Naive. Um, there's a there's more to the cross cultural contact, in other words, than just um, English and French. It's it's yeah. a more complicated picture than that. Um, and caprice interests me because it doesn't just, it crosses languages, but it also connects different forms of activity of artistic activity across cultures. So, uh, in the 17th century, people are pointing out that a caprice a caprice is a kind of playful deviation from the rules, and that that playful deviation from the rules is something you might do in poetry, uh, but you might also do it in, in music. There are musical caprices. Um, like a folly. A folly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, a witty um, kind of um, a witty uh, perf- performance of an ima- of a kind of imagine imaginative performance that goes against or bends the rules out of shape. And you can do it in poetry. You can do it in painting. You can do it in the visual arts. You can do it in um, when you're in, in 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 cooking too. I mean, there are uh, capric- pizza alla capricciosa is available in many good p- pizzerias even as we speak, and it's also a kind of it's a sort of folly, uh, a, a folly of the pizza. Mm-hmm. Um, so you take the basic ingredient and then you or the basic pattern and then you bend it wittily out of shape, and as you do, you demonstrate your um, your mastery of the rules, even as you break them. Um, yeah, but that's not what it means at all today. I mean, not right. Well, I mean, I think, uh, I think again, it's a complicated history, the history of Caprice and it has a dual meaning even then. So even, you know, even in the 17th century, the word has a sort of that positive cultural meaning I described, but also what runs along with that is a negative yeah, um, a negative use of the word to mean something headstrong, or that's the way you know, I use it. Yeah, so children, you know, uh, um, the capricious behaviour of of children because they haven't yet learned to, you know, to play to to act behave according to the rules of 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 adult society. Um, and there's a there's there's lots of crossing over between those that negative and that those that positive use because um, you know partly what the artist is saying is yes we are children um, uh, and yes we are going to uh, we are going to uh, um, obey our whim, our whims we are going to but but in, we're going to do it in such a way as to show that we are are in fact. Uh, we, we've understood all the rules of the game. We engagement. know we're breaking the rules. We yes, we're breaking right. The rules. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, yeah. uh, I, I, I've uh, know enough children to, to now think that they uh, are, are in exactly the same position. Uh, <laughs> I do too. 
I can I totally agree with that. <laughs> but there's a sense in which capitalism has this normative function of saying, you know, don't behave this way, behave that way. But then it's recuperated, used by the people involved to say, "Oh, hold on a minute! No, no, I'm going to. I, 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 I understand what you're saying, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to take you into a different place here." I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. When you when you say somebody is acting capriciously or with capriciousness or through caprice, you're signaling that they know what they should be doing, but they're not doing it. Um, and again, the word "should" is interesting there, but that reflects my usage. Which is astound. It's really a negative usage. I would never call somebody capricious in a positive sense. Although maybe I'm just wrong there. <laughs> um, maybe capricious is a good thing in some ways. Um, well, I won't be capricious and take up too much of your time. I promised I wouldn't. Uh, thank you very much for talking to us about the book. We have a traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, "What are you working on now?" Well, um, I'm just embarking on a, a project which has got to do with the a, a quite different kind of word, uh, and that's the word utopia. Um, and that's a good not one. just the, not just the word utopia, but also the the the, the book, the, the 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 work that uh, uh, by Thomas More, the um, in which More introduces this word to describe an alternative society. Of, uh, a, a kind of alternative to the intolerable present, but uh, a good place, which is also a no place, famously Moore's uh, utopia is just on the edges of the known world. And, no, and um, you know, the, the, the word utopia itself um, signals that this, is, this, this good place is a no place. I'm interested in how that word, how that idea, um, how that work uh, travels across the world in the first period, in the, in the early modern period, um, after it's first published in 1516. So it's a kind of global mapping of the um, translations and adaptations of Moore's Utopia uh, across the islands and continents of the early modern world. It's a great, it's a great project because my my guess is that although it would be very easy to translate or produce a calc of the word utopia in a language like Czech or Russian or Chinese or Japanese, I'm willing to bet that it went over whole cloth. That in Japanese, utopia is utopia or whatever. I don't know what it is in Japanese. In Russian, I think it's utopia. I don't think, it, maybe, I could be wrong, but it's it's an interesting, you know, there are certain words like rocket. The word for mm-hmm. rocket is always rocket in every language, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? There's no calc for rocket. And I'm not sure there was a calc or a, a kind of a synonym for utopia in any of these languages prior to Moore. But it's a fascinating well, project. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can't fully answer that question, but I can promise to come back in a few years. Yeah, I do. Actually, I'm really interested because it's... I'll tell it's, you more uh, about it. Yeah, it's a, good, it's a good question. Well, let me tell everybody that we've been talking to uh, Richard Scholar about his book, Emigres, French Words That Turn English from Princeton University Press. I'm Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and you've been listening to the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast. Thank you for listening. Richard, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure.